You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 186 of the Common Descent Podcast. This episode, we will be discussing owls. Very cool group of birds. Very cool. Very odd group of birds in many ways. And we'll be discussing all of the features that make owls unique among birds and how they allow owls to be the ultra specialist hunters that they are. Yeah, I'm very excited. Owls are very cool. And I know very little about birds. Yeah, I I learned a ton taking notes for this. Like, I had lots of owl fun facts in my head. Same. But learned a whole bunch of things that I didn't realize or didn't realize the extent of. Very, very cool. Excited to get into it. Well, decided to learn about who owls are. Yeah. That's a little pun, a little joke. A little owl, <laughs> little owl humor for you. We will be discussing owls because it was requested, but also we were called out a little bit on our Q&A form <laughs> by Eric, a self-proclaimed owl enthusiast who said they thought it was funny that we keep pretending owls aren't the best owls animals out there. <laughs> <laughs> they are pretty cool. They are pretty neat. And I do often make a point of reminding people they aren't the problem solvers they're portrayed as in cartoons. Not quite as wise. Not as, as wise. their reputation. But by no means not cool. We will go into that this whole episode. This, this is a apology <laughs> yes. to all of the owls and owl fans out there. Please, I don't, of all the animals to not be on the bad side of. I'm <laughs> yep. not interested in For me. real. Yeah, no, I don't want them coming for me. No. I mean, if I'm behind a locked door, they're not going to figure it out. <laughs> I just wear a mustache and some glasses. They won't know. They won't know. <laughs> it went that way. Owls aren't that smart. <laughs> <laughs> this episode topic was also requested by a decent amount of people who all wanted to hear about owls. We have Allison, M, Mad Jack Hyphen, Brandon, Big Boss Man, Fred, Simon, Michael, Z, and Brandon. Popular birds. Yes. Thank you, everybody, for the requests. People like dinosaurs. They like hearing about dinosaurs. And these are very cool, weird dinosaurs. Before we get into our topic, some quick announcements. First and foremost, as always, we have a Patreon. Sure do. This is how the podcast is able to do all the cool stuff we're able to do. It funds us top to bottom. And if you would like to support us, it is a great way to do so. And you get lots of extra benefits, lots of extra audio, interactions with us, ways live to streams. live streams. You can ask us questions. And at certain levels, you get your name shouted out. This episode, we would like to welcome our newest patrons, Aga and Lane. Welcome. Thank you so much for your support. If you're interested in checking out the Patreon, you can see links down in the description. So go ahead and go there if you're interested. Down there, you will also find links to our social media and other ways to get in contact with us, the website, and a mailing address. We do have a physical mailing address because people like to send us neat stuff every now and then. And we got some mail recently. We got Valentine's from Mark. With little uh, pterosaur and uh, plesiosaur tattoos. Yeah, little like temporary tattoo things. Very cool. Very, very cute. So th thank you. We appreciate the Valentines. And happy Valentine back to you. Yes. 
Next up in our announcements, we have some upcoming things. We do. We announced earlier this year our special series we will be doing for the year of 2024, Spotlight 2024, returning from our first Spotlight series uh, many years ago. It's back. This series of Spotlight, we will be sitting down with our fellow paleontology podcasters, science communicators, to talk about science communication For the last few weeks, we've been doing a bunch of these interviews, and we will be releasing them over the course of the year. Starting in March, we will be releasing these episodes on the first Wednesday of each month, which means the first one comes out a few days after this episode comes out. So keep your ears out. We've had a ton of fun chatting about science communication and podcasting and such with our paleo psychomy friends and we hope that you enjoy it as well yeah check it out it's been tons of fun and very interesting conversations so please give it a listen we also will be making a public appearance just down the road a little bit at etsu <laughs> here in johnson city at etsu con yes we will be going back to etsu con and doing some panels so if you're local or if you decide you want to travel to etsu con You can come and see us and see some of the fun panels we'll be doing. That is uh, near the end of March. And with that, we can wrap up the announcements and move on to the first official section of the episode, the news. Every episode, we like to gather up some recent studies in paleontology, life sciences, evolutionary studies, earth sciences that help us all keep up to date on what's going on in this neck of the woods of science research David, what's the news? I have a paper about why snakes are so cool. <laughs> it, I was I would have been shocked if you it, hadn't picked this one. This is a really cool study. <laughs> and the study is not called Why Snakes Are So Cool, but it kind of is about why snakes are so cool. The title is almost <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> this is research in the journal Science by Pascal Title et al. And in the blog post, we will link to an article about this study in Live Science by Hannah Osborne. You don't need me to tell you, if you've ever listened to this (laughs) podcast before, that snakes are awesome. There are around 4,000 living species of snakes, which means that snakes represent around one-eighth of all terrestrial vertebrates. Which is insane. Which is a preposterous thing to be true. They're also extremely diverse Mm -hmm. and variable. They live in most ecosystems. They occupy a bunch of different ecological niches, which makes them very interesting from an evolutionary and ecology perspective. How did you manage to do that? Yeah. Especially considering that snakes are lizards, and there are almost as many snakes as there are non-snake lizards, and there are tons of legless lineages of lizards that have a very snake-like body that are nowhere near as diverse and widespread as snakes. Not all groups of successful animals do all the stuff snakes have done. Yeah, so what is it about snakes that has allowed them to do this has been a big question. This study aims to investigate that very question by looking at the evolutionary history of snakes. In order to do this, this study establishes an up-to-date evolutionary tree of snakes and lizards using... Previous data along with genetic information from over a thousand species and diet information from natural history observations, museum specimens, stuff like that, for direct diet records for over 60,000 individual animals. Wow. Across this group, putting it 
all together into a massive data set and creating an evolutionary tree that tracks shifts in diet, ecology, anatomy across lizards and snakes over time. And then feeding this information into statistical models to identify patterns in the evolution of lizards and snakes. And what they find, well, they find a lot of things, but the big thing that they found that is showing up in all the headlines is that there appears to have been a rapid burst of diversification very early on in snake evolutionary history. Way at the beginning, a bunch of new evolutionary innovations, shifts in anatomy, behavior, their diet, that allowed snakes to establish a wide diversity early on and set the foundation for their continued vast diversity to this day. The authors call this in the paper, and this is where all the headlines are getting, a macroevolutionary singularity. Yes. Basically a big bang of snakes. Mm -hmm. That there was this huge eruption of new evolutionary pathways that set snakes on a different path from their fellow lizards. Now, what exactly it was that happened during this big burst is not clear. It's very hard to say what exactly are the innovations that happened the authors note it probably has to do with things like their long body plan, the flexible skulls, venom, their senses. Mm -hmm. A lot of these unique features to snakes that seem to have shown up very early on. Probably a bunch of those features evolved originally within a relatively short time and allowed for this diversification of snakes very early on. Since then, according to their analysis... It seems snakes never stopped being fast evolvers. Okay. In this study, they compare snake and lizard evolution over time and found that snakes are evolving, developing new niches, new habits, new diets, changes in the anatomy about three times faster than other lizards. Interesting. That snakes are rapidly changing throughout their evolutionary history, developing new things more often and more rapidly than other lizards and a lot of other animals. This is likely an important factor behind how snakes have gotten as widespread and diverse as they are, because they can adapt and change quickly. Yes. As they put it in the paper, this has allowed a recurring origination and diversification of specialized feeding strategies. That throughout their evolutionary history, snakes keep evolving new specializations, particularly for feeding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They note in the paper that snakes tend to be more specialized feeders than lizards. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot more snakes that have specific prey preferences than we tend to see in lizards, especially with vertebrates. And I think this was in the press release or in one of the articles that I read, one of the authors is quoted as saying, if there is an animal that can be eaten, it is likely that some snake somewhere has evolved the ability to eat it. Yeah, exactly. They are really good at specializing in new types of prey. And they often have, there are a bunch of different snakes that have like this single kind, like snails. Yeah. That they only eat these, which is an, un whenever we see an animal do that, that's notable. Yes. And that tends to come along with particular behaviors and anatomy and environments and roles in the ecosystem that they are adapting to along the way. Mm -hmm. 
So it seems that a lot of the uh, articles written about it are framing it as snakes are good at evolution. Yes. They are just that not only they, they evolve fast and they evolve well, mm-hmm. which isn't really, mm-hmm. yeah, evolution doesn't really have good or bad like that. But that the, the authors say, yeah, it, this is kind of what winning at evolution looks like. Yes. And it seems to have been kicked off by this early burst of diversification that set a foundation that has allowed snakes to continue to be adaptable, rapidly evolving, and readily specializing into new niches, diets, and ecosystems. Which is things we, we've talked about in like other groups like insects and rodents that are reproduce fast and have lots of babies and are generalists. Mm-hmm. Often we see throughout ev- you know, evolutionary history that those groups keep up with changes much better than a lot of other groups. It's very interesting that snakes are doing that as well because mm-hmm. they are predators, predators only, yep. which is already an unusual trait. And many of them very specialized. And yep. it's not that you don't get rodents and insects that are, but just that that happens very often with them. So it's very intriguing that they have also been able to maintain a similar kind of intense and very reactive evolutionary pattern. Yeah. Snakes are... I. I love this study because it says that snakes are better than everything else. Well, you know. Quantitatively. If we tested everyone on the same task, if we tested we a have fish climbing a tree. <laughs> snakes are awesome at being snakes. At the very least, we can say, I, I feel very confident saying that snakes are better at being lizards than lizards are. Yes. So take that, lizards. <laughs> and... They are definitely faster and more active evolvers than Crocs are. For sure. <laughs> so, those two sides of a coin Those here. are two, <laughs> two very distinct, distinct philosophies. This paper is interesting because not only does it give us insights into what makes snakes so distinctive evolutionarily among lizards, it also provides an incredible data set that mm-hmm. will be used into the future. And the authors make note of this in the paper this will allow us also to understand how snakes have impacted ecosystems. Yes. That this isn't just about what snakes themselves are doing, but this rapid evolution, this constant diversification into new niches and new ecological roles means that they are having a proportionately high impact on ecosystems around the world. That was one of the first thoughts I had when you compared the evolution rate between them and lizards is... I wonder how often it is that a niche that opened up couldn't have been filled by a lizard because a snake already filled it. Yeah. Are they slowing down the ability of lizards to break into new niches? Yeah. Are they getting in before competitors? Yeah. Do? So they're affecting the, the the what we see of the evolutionary history of lizards because they don't have as many opportunities because snakes are getting in before them. Yeah. In comparing snakes to other legless lizards. Often we frame it, I frame it, as snakes have certain adaptations that set them apart, that have allowed them to be snakes rather than just a few relatively limited diversity of legless lizards. But there could also be a point to be made that whenever legless lizards show up, there are already snakes doing the thing that they're trying to do. Yep. And so, yeah, there may just not be as many available (laughs) niches for new legless lizards groups. Very cool. So cool. That's Uh, a fun one. Shout out to those authors for uh, proving my point. (laughs) Seven years I've been making this point. Vindicated. (laughs) You all laughed at me. (laughs) (laughs) Will laughed at me. It's true. (laughs) 
Well, my news does still stay in the realm of Squamates because it is about Komodo dragons. Hey, great. That's yeah. almost snakes. <laughs> this is looking at their teeth and how similar they are to the teeth of some predatory dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is research by Taya Maho and Robert Rice in Plus One. And the article is by Chrissy Sexton in Earth.com. This study was looking at the teeth of Komodo dragons, specifically that they are ziphodont teeth. And we've talked about this before. This has come up in other episodes. We, we talked about it with some crocs that have ziphodont-esque yeah. teeth. We also, episode 143 was monitorless. Exactly. These are typically curved, flattened, and serrated edged teeth. Yes, very knife shaped. Very knife shaped, very specialized for cutting flesh. So we see them in predatory animals, particularly theropod dinosaurs, the two-legged predatory dinosaurs. Many of them had ziphodont teeth. Mm-hmm. And this study was saying that today the Komodo dragon is the only one with true ziphodont teeth, as in vertebrate ziphodont teeth the way we would think of them. Right. You know, there are sharks that have serrated teeth, but they don't have the same kind of teeth that we look for in terrestrial verts. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say ziphodont teeth are kind of like terrestrial vertebrates doing their best impression of a shark. Yes. Evidently, the Komodo dragon is the only one that fully checks the box on Mm -hmm. all the features it requires. That being that they are strongly serrated, they have dentine cores, so the inside of the tooth is made out of dentine, with an enamel cap. Mm -hmm. And so those features are the the keys. They wanted to look at the Komodo dragon's teeth and tooth replacement, because that's another thing that they share with theropod dinosaurs and potentially early predatory synapses, like some of the Mm -hmm. early predators in the Paleozoic. Yeah, they're the precursors to the mammal lineage. Exactly. That they also had, some of them had ziphodont teeth and tooth replacement. So the Komodo dragon could be potentially a decent stand-in. This study basically wanted to get a bunch of info about what exactly is going on inside that head. How good a model could they be? Mm-hmm. So it's not doing any comparisons yet. It's just saying, can we compare? The Komodo dragon, uh, which for anyone who's unfamiliar, is the largest living lizard today found currently on the island of Komodo, and is a monitor lizard. They looked at CT scans of adult and juvenile skulls and a whole bunch of teeth, specifically from Killot, a 20-year-old Komodo dragon from the Toronto Metro Zoo. Oh, cool. The keepers gathered a bunch of the shed teeth, and they used that for histology tests to cut the teeth open and look at the oh, anatomy. Very cool. Very neat. Thanks, Killot, for your donation to science. Good job making teeth. <laughs> They went through the morphology of the teeth, the ontogeny, how they change as they grow, and the replacement patterns, along with data about their feeding patterns and how it matches up throughout ontogeny and these features. They found that the adult teeth are, to quote, surprisingly similar to theropod teeth. Very, very similar. They have the strong recurve and the serrations. They also have what's what are called true ampullae, which are folds on the teeth that help strengthen the serrations, which is also seen in theropods. Cool. So very, very, very similar adaptations, likely making them, as both the paper and the article put it, ideal models of comparison for ancient zivodont predators. As far as the other features go, they found some neat things. Their continuous tooth replacement, which is a thing that a lot of reptiles do. That's a pretty normal reptile thing both today's reptiles and ancient ones. Komodo dragons had up to five replacement teeth per tooth position at a time. Okay. Which is only seen in Komodo dragons thus far. 
Like, this detailed enough study probably hasn't been done on all lizards, but this is not known to be an all-lizard feature. Komodo dragons are really good at replacing their teeth. Interesting. They have a whole bunch, and they do it fast. They form new teeth every 40 days. Wow. Other reptiles were noted to, for taking a range of three months to a year. So they have a bunch of replacement teeth and replace them quickly, which are very likely associated with the fact that they are active predators mm -hmm. and they need sharp, fresh teeth to be able to catch and kill prey effectively. They also got a lot of information about the way their teeth change as they go from juvenile to adult. Juveniles had fewer specializations. Their teeth were more generalized. Lack of the true serrations, the actual ziphodont features, more delicate teeth they were described as. Uh, this is partially because young Komodo dragons are living most of their time in the trees and eating insects, so they aren't f slicing into flesh yet. Mm -hmm. And then as they grow and come down out of the trees, we see those features come into play and see the, the shift very notably happen as they age. They also noted that the front teeth of Komodo dragon adults are either very small or missing to make space for their flicking tongue hmm. to come in and out. They have the forked tongue, like we've talked about with snakes and monitor lizards in general, yep. that help them smell and hunt out prey. This allows them to do that without having to open the mouth yep. and get the teeth out of the way. They just have a lack of teeth or very reduced teeth in that spot of the front of the mouth. Yeah, like snakes. Mm -hmm. They This also led them to compare to other varanids, other monitor lizards, and find similar features with those front teeth and potentially have some insights into the evolution of that scenting tongue oh, yeah. across the group. So there's uh, other lines of study that this, this one has brought up for potential future investigations. That's very cool. I knew that Komodo dragons were comparable to theropod teeth because that's come up in studies before. People have researched Komodo dragon feeding styles. It's really cool to see how detailed those comparisons get. Yes. Those similarities. Because the multiple replacement is also something we see in s at least some dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. I don't. And now it makes me want to know if we see similar ontogenetic changes in dinosaur teeth and similar stacking and replacement rates in theropod teeth. Yep, yep. Are these features of sharp-toothed reptilian predators? Yeah, although the point that you made about young Komodo dragons are living in trees eating different things, we might not expect to see a similar young-to-adult shift in something like Velociraptor or T-Rex. Yes. Because they're not making that same change. Exactly. They might be living a very different young-to-adult lifestyle. That's very cool. It's very fun to find. There is no animal today that is a perfect one-to-one -one for really any extinct species. No. So we end up having to find, well, this animal, the teeth, yes. are a great comparison to those extinct animals. And putting together pieces of different modern-day species to find the comparisons that work best for extinct species. It would be really neat to have like a collage of, you know, here's T-Rex or Deinonychus or whichever dinosaur you wanted to put, and here's the various crocodiles, birds, Komodo dragon, yeah, for the elephants. For parts of the body. That we've used to study the walking, the teeth, the feeding, the anatomy. Very fun. In fact, my next bit of news is that. Ha-ha! <laughs> uh, this time, looking at feet and how animals walked, 
using modern dinosaurs to understand extinct dinosaurs. Cool. Uh, this study is really neat because it develops a new method to study a thing, Ooh. which is fun. This is research in the journal Nature Communications by Armita Manafsadeh, Stephen Gatesy, and Bart Anjan Bular. And we will link in the blog post to a write-up on Yale News by Jim Shelton. Among the many things that are challenging to study about dinosaurs and other extinct creatures is the way that their joints move. Mm-hmm. This is something that over the years there's been lots of development and lots of different techniques attempted to be used for this. But often if we're looking at a foot or a leg to try to understand how did these bones go together and how did they move next to each other, usually we are relying on physically holding the bones together and moving them and to a certain degree intuition about what seems right, what seems like it matches up with what we see in animals today. But as these authors point out, it's hard to get solid data on joint position, and it's hard to confirm whether our inference about the joints is correct, or rather to confirm how accurate it is. Yeah, because like some joints, you like you'll get some uh, you get some joints between two bones that are very tight and mm-hmm. give you a very clear mechanical indication of how they fit together and how they move. But a lot of others, if they had cartilage or other connective tissues between, you're missing what was actually connecting those two Mm -hmm. so you have a gap that you have to kind of figure out yes there's also the 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 ever-present question with ancient animals of what they could do versus what they did do yes like i can overextend my elbow yes but i shouldn't (laughs) (laughs) this study develops a method for quantifying joint movement in in this case dinosaurs cool they began with analyzing the foot bones of two birds Guinea fowl and emus. Nice. So these are two modern species of walking birds. These are birds that don't, these are birds that spend their time on the ground walking and running around. The researchers examined the bones, specifically looking at the joints of the ankle and the toes to see how the bones fit together and move together, and then developed a mathematical approach to assign a score to the different poses that the bones can take. Basically to rate how well they articulate in different poses. And if I remember right, the score was 0 to 100 to basically say how good, to put it very generally, is this position of these two bones next to each other. Yes. How well are they articulating in this position? Then they took x-ray videos of these birds walking to watch how the bones and the feet moved as they walked and compared that with their mathematical scores and found that the poses of the bones that were rated as high quality articulations were the poses the birds were using while walking. Okay, yeah. So this is a, we call this a validation. They came up with a method to analyze the joints and then looked at the birds and went, yeah, our score for good articulation matches what the birds are using. Yeah, this is what we think looks like it would be the best, and that turns out to be what is happening. Yes, which means that we could, in theory, take measurements like this and score the joints and articulation of extinct animals to predict quite confidently how their 
joints were moving when they were using those parts of the body. Yeah. So then they did that. They specifically looked at the feet of Deinonychus. Nice. Deinonychus, uh, my favorite dinosaur. Uh, Deinonychus is Velociraptors from Jurassic Park. That's Deinonychus. Very famous dinosaur, not only for really cool fossils and being awesome, but also for the history of dinosaur study. Mm-hmm. A very pivotal discovery. They took well-preserved fossils of Deinonychus foot bones, calculated articulation scores to try to get, all right, we've validated this method. What does it tell us about the feet of Deinonychus? From the paper, it doesn't sound like there were any groundbreaking revelations about Deinonychus. That they actually walked like ballerinas. They actually hopped around. Yeah. Uh, But this did allow them to narrow down the range of movements that they were most likely using while walking refining sort of the understanding from previous studies to say here is even more accurately the pose that these bones would have been in while walking. They point out that the Deinonychus probably moved very similarly to other near-bird dinosaurs. And they also applied this to the terrible claw that Deinonychus is named for, that Big sickle-shaped claw that folded upwards so that they could hold it up off the ground. Again, you've seen Jurassic Park. Now, they didn't, again, they didn't do, this paper isn't about that. Yes. But they do make the note that based on the articulation of these bones and how they would best fit together, they said their results tentatively find support for these claws being used as stabbing or pinning tools rather than slashing or digging tools. Okay, okay. Which does line up with a lot of other evidence that's from the shape of the claw. Yes. That suggests they might have been better at sticking rather than slashing. Yeah, driving the point in, not dragging it across something. Yes, kind of like if you think of a cassowary or something. Those are stabbing tools, Mm -hmm. not slicing tools. This is saying tentatively, a sort of preliminary using this new method, the way that the bones articulate together also seems to support the idea of sticking rather than slashing. Cool. This is this is very satisfying. This study is very, very pleasing because it has those nice, clear steps of here's the problem, here's how we attempted to look at it, and here's how we tested it, and here's how we then applied it to a new scenario. Yeah, I was really excited to talk about this one because there's not like a discovery here or a new incredible insight into some fossil animal. Yeah, we didn't just suddenly go, oh my gosh, they walk so weirdly or, or completely different. But the development of what at least appears to be a nice, clean, reliable method for understanding the joints of these animals. Yes, which can come into major play when we get to some of those tougher questions on like how did such large ones walk Mm -hmm. you know we don't have anything walking around on two legs that size anymore were they doing something now we can look at the feet and say were you doing something unusual or were you not both of which would be interesting yeah and the authors make the point that this methodology in theory should be able to be used for any joints Mm -hmm. in any animals yep yep this study specifically looked at ankles and toes but if we have modern animals to study that are comparative, we can do a similar mathematical scoring of the joints and then use that to apply to anything from the fossil record. I, I, I want a bunch of those studies to be done, you know, to oh. measure the joints and then x-ray video a whole bunch of animals, every single one. Because I also really want to know who are the who break the formula. Yeah. Do sloths just ignore it? 
and it you have to make up new equations because sloths just don't abide by what we would consider yeah. good articulation or are there ones that do it in a have multiple positions that have other options or something if i had to guess what sort of top priority next steps would be for something like this i would imagine it's bird arm joints yep yep the way that the wings articulate and then looking at birds and near bird dinosaurs in the past to see how did their wing joints change over time yes yes absolutely very cool study awesome my news was awesome today you had you had some good news no offense to the other uh, 370 newses that I've done over the history of the podcast. Uh, but today's news, I'm very excited. About. Uh, none of those but other ones. My favorite animals yes. and my favorite dinosaur. Yeah. This is a great, this is, this yeah. is pretty good. I don't even care about owls. It's a good day, Tater. <laughs> my next one is not about any big exciting predators, but it is a very cool fossil deposit. Okay. These are smaller animals, but they lived somewhere neat. This is research on a new fossil deposit that looks like it is an Ordovician polar ecosystem. This is research by Farid Saleh et al. in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, and the article is by Keith Coing in Astrobiology. So early Paleozoic sites that have soft tissue are often found in the Cambrian Mm -hmm. and tend to capture tropical and temperate ecosystems, so warm to, you know, moderate habitats. This fossil site is early Ordovician, so still quite old. This is about 470 million years old, Mm -hmm. and is from France. These fossils have been named the Cabriere biota, and this is a new Lagerstadt that is extremely well-preserved fossils. They described over 400 exceptionally well-preserved specimens that display both biomineralized and soft-bodied organisms. This is another one of those early Paleozoic Burgess Shale type fossil sites. Yes, indeed. Very cool. Uh, This includes things, you know, they have shelly fossils, but they also have digestive tracts and soft body tissue uh, cuticles and things like that. Awesome. Preserved. Most of these are are mainly preserved in iron oxides. That's the nature of this fossil site. And seems to be likely a polar habitat, which is unusual for a lot of the others, which are more tropical and temperate. So it's a new region and potential type of ecosystem that we haven't got this level of soft tissue detail from before. It is currently potentially the closest Lagerstadt to the South Pole that we know of, and the high biodiversity there indicates that it was probably a, a thriving ecosystem. So not just we're not just getting a barely glimpse, but actually a solid habitat in a cold region during this time. Yeah. For any confused listeners, it fossil site in France, but the continent has shifted yes, since exactly. the Ordovician at that time. Yes, thank uh, you. <laughs> what, what we refer to as paleolatitude. Mm-hmm. A lot of the continental landmass in the Ordovician was concentrated in the southern hemisphere. Yes. So this one used to be much more polar and preserves a bunch of cool things. There are some interesting like features to some of the, the organisms preserved here. Echinoderms, which are your urchins and sea stars and their cousins, are fairly rare, but they are there, mm-hmm. while sponges and algae are extremely common, are much more abundant. Interesting. There's also a bunch of non-biomineralized arthropods, so, you know, crustacean and cousins of those types of organisms, fragments found at the site, with other elements that are reminiscent of 
Cambrian Burgess Shale type organisms, such as some a group called Armored Lobopodidians, which I don't know what those are, but they were mentioned in the paper. Lobopodians are wor- sort of worm-like arthropod relatives. This group includes Hallucigenia. Oh, okay. That's I at least currently. Yep, I don't yep. know how often Hallucigenia <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, moves around. Right. It may be it may be solid these days. I don't actually know. <laughs> I had forgotten that mm-hmm. name. <laughs> this is an interesting mix of organisms. They said that it has a mixture of early Ordovician taxa, uh, Lagerstadt taxa, and Cambrian forms. So okay. it has an interesting mixture of forms. That, along with the high amount of biodiversity, just the amount of things found at the site, has suggested to the researchers that this could have been a refuge, a refugium. I was wondering. Mm-hmm. That during the early Ordovician, we see higher water temperatures, you know, temperatures in the oceans on the rise around the globe, especially around the equator. This might have been a refuge closer to the pole for those cold water adapted organisms before that rising uh, in temp to go and survive longer and right. this is a escape space, the heat. Yeah, where they could continue to survive, whereas they're being driven extinct or away in the more southern, in the lower latitude regions. Exactly. So it could be an interesting refugium type habitat, which is uh, always exciting because you can often get hanger-ons that stay there longer than they do in other fossil sites. And often can get an interesting mixture of organisms because you have those who all need that habitat to survive. Mm -hmm. But they did note that it shows comparable ecological structuring to modern polar communities. So it does seem to be a fairly standard polar ecosystem just with different stuff in it. Yeah, this, but the same basic ecological roles yeah. and everything. All the, all the pieces are interchanged with extinct species and, and other things, but the same overall format of a polar ecosystem yeah huh that's cool which is pretty especially like all the way back then yeah cold communities have been cold communities for a very long time it makes me wonder if there are only so many ways to be an ecosystem at the pulse at that extreme of a a temperature and a habitat Mm -hmm. we talk a lot on the podcast about the biases in the fossil record and Mm -hmm. how there are certain organisms that don't fossilize as well there are certain habitats that don't fossilize as well we don't often talk very much about the latitudinal bias in the fossil record that so much of the fossil record particularly at certain time periods is very much weighted towards temperate and tropical environment especially in marine communities Mm -hmm. and then there are other cases where the tropics are missing from fossil sites like you know we don't get a lot of rainforest fossil deposits so that at varying times in certain types of habitats we're just missing certain latitudes yeah we just don't see what the poles look like at this time or we don't see what the equator looked like on land at this time which is always a very important thing to try to keep in mind when we're trying to establish global patterns. This actually comes up a lot when we look at mass extinctions. Yes. And this came up a lot in our extinction episode talk that often we have a lot of information from certain regions, but that makes it hard for us to say, well, did this same pattern of extinction happen 
at the poles, yeah. as we see in the tropics. Did they notice that this was happening, or right. was it even worse <laughs> there? So, starting to get glimpses at the polar ecosystems of the early Paleozoic is really cool, because like with this, we're bound to find trends that we haven't seen elsewhere. Yeah, and it can be very easy to forget about those regions, and just forget to consider, especially I feel like the poles, which are already remote and hard to study today. Yeah, I mean, we don't live there. Yeah, exactly. Like Humans avoid the poles. Humans don't do well at the top and bottom of Earth. And neither do most animals. So it's already kind of out of sight, out of mind. And then we also typically don't have good fossil records of it. Mm -hmm. So it can be very easy to forget that, yeah, life's been doing stuff there the whole time, it seems. So we got to keep that in mind. Yeah, our fossil record is missing all the waterbenders. <laughs> oh, man, that's that's a bummer. Yep. Oh. Yeah, it sure is. Probably oh. airbenders, too. Yeah, if, no. If being, if absolutely. Being, well, especially after oh. a certain point. Oh, yeah, well, absolutely. And they're up on mountains? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, no, that's... Earthbenders would be good. Earthbenders everywhere. We got yeah. lots of earthbenders. The Doing big great. Earthbender Burying, biases. Burying themselves. Write <laughs> the fossil record for us. <laughs> With that, we can wrap up the news and move on to our main topic and discuss what owls are. Who owls are? Who are owls? Who do they think they are? And what are the features that make an owl? Stay tuned. I think owls are probably one of the most famous, at least looking birds. Yeah. Like, they are extremely iconic, very unique, and famous around the world because they're found around the world. Yeah, they also are very prominent in popular culture, mm -hmm. both, both in like cartoons and TV and stuff, but also in mythology and ancient stories and things. We as humans have been aware of them for a very long time in a very interested way like we've been intrigued by them throughout our history yeah and they have a similar thing to something like snakes or crocs with humans in that they are very distinctive they look very unusual you know an owl when you see one and that makes them stand out precisely and as a group they are a very interesting mixture of fascinating things that we know a lot about and parts that we don't know as much as you'd expect us to know one of those in the second category is that their placement among birds has actually been somewhat foggy hmm. and like lots of shifting around over the history as to who they really should be closest Ooh. and who they should be most related to and placed with among the birds. This is an audio yep. product. So <laughs> listeners, you, you just imagine a little counter for how many times uh, we will make that joke. Currently, they are within the group Teller aves, which is the core group of land birds. So, as that, opposed to seabirds. As opposed to seabirds, exactly. They're most closely related to, once again, currently to the, the Axipitromorphae, which includes your birds of prey, the diurnal birds of prey, which we'll get into, eagles and hawks, the New World vultures, all of those birds. Owls are often considered the nocturnal birds of prey, and these are the diurnal birds of prey. They are not from the same bird of prey 
that gave them those similar preying features. Right, but close relatives, at least as our current evidence suggests, yes. close relatives to those other birds of prey. But it is likely that they started becoming hunting birds on their own. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's not thought that the features they share are shared due to common ancestry or anything like that. The other group that they're considered close with is the Carassiomorphae, which includes things like mouse birds and a bunch of other birds, woodpeckers, kingfishers, tro- trogons, a ton of others. And is that two different potential placements or are they Those all... are the two that they're considered near. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah. But their placement within this group is still potentially in flux. Okay. You know, I don't know what the most recent research is on, but everything I found made a mention of like, yeah, they've been hard to place. Yeah. We aren't confident. Let we This has come up a bunch with other weird group, very distinctive, odd groups of animals, like snakes, like turtles, yes. like bats. And we'll get into part of why that is, is that their fossil record is a unique one. Mm. But as far as the group of owls, which is Strigiformes, these are your owls. They comprise over 200 species in 28 different genera, separated into two main groups. The Strigidae, which are your true owls or typical owls, and the the Titanidae, which are your barn owls. Okay. And so sometimes you'll see barn owls called not true owls, that they're not actually owls, but they, they are in the owl group, just there is a group of owls that's sometimes called true owls. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there's. I guess 200 is a lot of species. I don't have a sense of how many species is a lot for birds. Yeah, for a single group of birds. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they it's are. Not a lot for snakes. No, it's not. So it's... <laughs> when you compare it to that, <laughs> the barn owls are not as speciose as the true owls. There's only about 19 species there across. Uh, I think two or three genus, uh, different genera, or maybe some subgroups within those. These include. Barn owls, but also grass owls and masked owls. I think bay owls are also in there. So there's a couple of others that are all look very similar, but have some slightly different names. But they're all under the barn owl umbrella. The true owls are most of your rest other species. There's 194 of them. There's a bunch of different groups, bunch of different genera. These are much more diverse in their shape and form than the barn owls. Barn owls do range in size and whatnot, but they're typically medium. Your true owls range from the giant eagle owls to tiny pygmy owls and stuff like that. So much more diverse. But the barn owl is often called the most widely distributed. They have they are found in more places as a group than any other group, single uh, grouping of owl. Yeah, it's interesting that they are kind of set off to the side because in my mind, knowing nothing about owls, they feel like a very typical owl. Yeah. They kind of have the ur-owl feel. Yeah, they, they are very widespread and very familiar. Yes. So, yeah, that that's a distinction. I didn't see most things note them as not technically owls. It's just that they are a specific group. And then there's another group that is often called true owls. Yeah. Both, though, are found on every continent but Antarctica and a couple of you know, islands here and there. But they are basically worldwide. There are some that aren't. Like, barn owls, I don't think, are typically found in high northern latitudes so they don't get into really cold places but there are true owls that do get into that area so basically if one's not found there the other will be like there's an owl basically for every environment basically for every place they range from fair they're typically moderately sized birds not tiny usually but not often gigantic there are though ones that get outside of that size range 
To give just some numbers, barn owls, which are considered medium, typically are just over a pound, Mm -hmm. half a kilogram. The great horned owl, which is a famous one, can be up to three pounds, 1.4 kilograms. Yeah, there's not a lot to an owl. Yeah. They're very lightweight. They are, extremely. The biggest of owls are going to be things like Eurasian eagle owls, which are found in Eurasia. Females can weigh up to 3.9 to 10.1 pounds is what I found the range for them. 1.7 to 4.6 kilograms. And males are a little bit below that, 2.6 to 7.1 pounds and 1.2 to 3.2 kilograms. These are among the largest of owls. There are some other owls that range in their weight and their size. They mention that the great gray is lighter in weight but longer than this owl. The Blackiston's fish owl, though, is on average the heaviest owl, with females weighing up to 6.5 to 10.1 pounds, which is 2.9 to 4.6 kilograms. So they're still within a similar range, but on average, they tend to be the heaviest of owls. Mm -hmm. And the females, in this case, are about 25% larger than the males, which is a feature of owls. Mm -hmm. Typically, females tend to be larger than the males. Yeah. So a a 10-pound owl is a substantial owl. Yep. That's a big bird. As compared to the elf owl, which is found here in the U.S., and are the world's smallest owls at 1.4 ounces or 40 grams. Just a little little teaspoon owl. (laughs) Itty bitty bitty. The long-whiskered owlet and the pygmy owl are also very similar in size. So there's a couple of, there's a handful of species that are... A couple of ounces of owl. Very tiny. That's so small. So they actually have quite a bit of a size range. You know, Mm -hmm. the biggest of owls are getting up to eagle sizes, you know, of big birds of prey. And then the smallest ones are down to songbird sizes almost. Like, so they are a fairly wide range. Most are falling in that middle category, as is typical, but... Owls are fairly diverse. They also have very distinct adaptations as a group and some things that are distinct for different lifestyles and different sty- you know, different habits of owl. Some of these things are the things that make them famous for us. Their big eyes, their flat face, that round dish of a face on many of them, their spinny neck, those things that we typify in cartoon owls and whenever we portray them. Many of these things are very unique to owls as a bird group and set them apart from the rest of birds. There are also some things I found that are fairly unique for them that aren't as famous that I just don't hear. I hadn't heard about before. They are the most heavily feathered birds. Huh? They are extremely feathered, at least some of the most. I'm sure there are some that probably give them a run for their money, but they have feathered eyelids, which is not a norm. (laughs) They are extremely feathery. I found one research paper that noted a study that took a great horned owl and counted all the feathers off of the specimen. It took 46 hours for them to count them, and there were 12,230 feathers. Wow. Extremely floofy birds. Interesting. Very densely feathered, and they're also famous for often being feathered down the legs, some of them even onto the toes with uh, with the Arctic and and cold-weathered owls. Yeah. They also are noteworthy for having a very upright posture. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have their body horizontal and that forward-facing face, which they have a fairly normal bird skull when you just look at the skull, but they do have it kind of tilted down more. Yeah, and they often have a relatively small beak mm-hmm. compared to a lot of other birds. The eyes are really big. The feathers give the face sort of a flat appearance. 
which along with that more upright stance makes them look more like people. Yes. Like they, they have sort of an upright stance, flat faces, big eyes, small nose. Once again, it's easy to see why humans have identified with owls throughout the years. We can anthropomorphize them very easily. Yes. You just look like a dude up in a tree. Yep. Another thing I found that's a, a weird feature, they hatch their eggs asynchronously. They lay their first egg and then start brooding. And that egg starts incubating. And then after a bit, they'll lay the second egg and continue to brood. Right. They don't lay them all at once and then hatch them all at the same yeah. time. Most birds start brooding, start sitting on the nest after the last egg of the clutch is laid. Yeah. They do it throughout. And it's thought that maybe this is a way to better handle situations where there's low food because now you won't have all the babies hungry all at once. Hmm. It gives the first egg a head start so that they can start taking advantage of food individually. And then if there turns out to be not enough food, it doesn't put the whole clutch in danger, just the latecomers. Yeah, that's Uh, interesting. Harsh, but potentially helping to make more babies survive in the long run. Yeah, well, they need all that energy to grow all those feathers. Yes, indeed. (laughs) But let's start getting into some of those very famous owl characteristics and talking about what makes them so unique. One of the first things that they are noteworthy for is very big eyes, which... Lots of birds have very large eyes with very good eyesight. Owls are especially on those things. Their eyes are tubular. They are tube-shaped, not what I saw called one time disc-shaped or globular-shaped, as in most most birds. They have the sclerotic ring, that bony ring around the eyes, the iris or the sclera that helps stabilize the eye. These eyes are so big that in some of these smaller species, they can take up 50% of the space of the skull. Yeah, if you look at an owl's skull, and hopefully we'll have pictures in the blog post, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it looks like, not, not dissimilar to like a house cat skull or certain primates. Yes. Just these gigantic orbits. Yep. Well, it almost looks like a baby skull. Yeah. Where it's like, it looks like you haven't grown into your eyes yet. Yes. But that's how big they are meant to be. This gives them excellent vision, you know, very acute vision, but also because they are forward facing, very extreme binocular vision, mm-hmm. which is the overlapping vision that we have and that lots of predators are famous for having. Yeah, it gives you a better depth perception. Exactly. Let's you zone in and locate a target accurately. Theirs is interesting because it is fairly narrow. It's not a wide field. They only have about 110 degrees of view with 70 degrees of it overlapping. We have 180 degrees of view and 140 degrees of overlap. So they have a very narrow but very good binocular vision, which comes into play in just a bit when we talk about their crazy neck. Their eyes are full of rods. You know, rods and cones are these cells that help sense different aspects of light. Cones are for color. Rods are for light and dark. They have a lot of rods, which gives them their very good night vision. They also have the tempentum, the tepantum lucidum, which is that reflective layer. So they have excellent night vision, but this by no means indicates that they have poor day vision. Uh, they are famous for being nocturnal nighttime predators, but there's sometimes the idea that they then are, are shy from the light and right. they are ex- as effective as an eagle in daylight they can see perfectly well. So there's a bunch that are daytime predators just as well as any other bird of prey. One fun, weird fact I found is that their eyelids are evidently weird for birds. Hmm. Like covered in feathers. Yes, they're feathery eyelids. They've got the three eyelids most birds have, an upper, a lower, and the nictitating membrane, that clear eyelid that comes in from the side. Mm-hmm. 
their upper and lower eyelids do a thing that most birds don't do. They blink like we blink with upper eyelid coming down, which evidently most birds don't do. I found a list that said parrots, owls, pigeons are really some of the only birds that blink like we blink. Huh. And then they sleep with the upper, the lower eyelid coming up. And then they use the nictitating membrane to protect and clean the eyes when they're not closing them all the way. But that's also another thing that makes them very anthropomorphic is that they blink like we do. And they have that lazy upper eyelid that can just kind of come down. So they blink in a very human way. Yeah, that's interesting. Right? I've never thought about it, but now that you say it, I'm like, well, no, that does sound familiar. Yeah, I immediately... like what I've seen owls do. Looked up videos (laughs) and was like, go ahead, blink. Blink while the handler's talking so that I can see. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Going down from the eyes, their neck... Famously, owls have their spin-around head, their topsy-turvy head. They have an extremely flexible neck that lets them turn their head... 270 degrees in total. Almost a full rotation back to the starting point. Yep. This is due to... Tony Hawk would be so impressed. Right? Exactly. (laughs) This... You'd be able to keep an eye on where you're going the whole time. The whole time. That was a very (laughs) odd reference for this podcast. I'm surprised that I made that reference. (laughs) There's a number of ways they are able to do this, but... Why they are able to, like, why have they evolved such a crazy neck is probably due to their crazy eyes. Mm-hmm. These tubular eyes are locked in place in the socket. They can't look side to side. You know, they can't give someone the side eye. Right. They cannot move their eye much at all because their eyes are too big and the bony rings, those sclerotic rings, have basically locked them into place. So if they want to look, they have to look around like Michael Keaton Batman. <laughs> and move their head to look at whatever they want to look at. Yes. Because they can't look over to the side with their uh, by moving, moving the pupils. Yeah. It's interesting because birds often have very mobile, flexible necks yes. that are able to stabilize the head. Owls have taken that one step further to say, well, the neck is so mobile that you don't even have to move the eyes. Yes. And for a lot of birds, it's they, they said most can turn their heads within 180 degrees. Mm-hmm. And that's likely for preening, to be able to yeah. clean themselves. That's where it's really important for them. But most other birds have eyes that are still mostly on the side and can increase their range of view. Owls have a very narrow range on top of immovable eyes. Yes. So they need to face their whole face <laughs> at whatever they're looking at. Which also I, arguably gives them yet more of a, that human characteristic. Yeah. That they look directly at the thing that they're looking at. Yeah, yeah. They make direct face-on-face eye contact with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we look at their neck, they have 14 neck bones, which is a lot. But that's not actually unusual for birds. So yeah. that is not... It's a lot for us. Yes, yeah, a lot for us. But for birds, birds evidently range from 10 to 26. So yeah. owls are average for how many neck bones they have. So that's not the only thing that lets them have their weird head movements. The features of those bones get a little more interesting when you zoom in. The atlas, which is the first bone of the neck that attaches to the skull, has one connector, which for like us mammals, it often has more connection points. This connector is a ball joint. So it is a very flexible joint. This is also true of most birds minus a few. So once again, not the only reason they're able to do this, but a good thing to note. Their neck is in an S shape, which gives them multiple angles for the bones to move. Mm -hmm. Also pretty typical for birds. Yep, yep. 
Where it gets really weird is that the different sections of the neck have different bending features. They tend to bend better in different directions. Some letting the neck move left and right, some letting it twist side to side better. And because of that S pattern, a bone that bends at one part of the S versus another will allow the head to move in different directions. And so it seems that there are sections that are specialized for different movements of the head. And all of these combined, when you move each part to its extreme, you get a total of 270 degrees of movement. This though isn't the only specialization because when you twist your head almost all the way around exorcism style, there's stuff in the neck. Yeah, there's that, all sorts of soft tissues yeah. and spinal cord and things. So that's been one of the questions is how do you survive doing that? Yeah, how, do you, how are you not twisting your jugular yeah. in knots or and, and giving yourself a choker hold by clamping the blood supply yeah. or something. A number of features come into play here. Their esophagus, trachea, and arteries have reinforced walls, so they're tougher. Cool. They are less compressible. One of the main arteries in the neck passes through holes in the bone of the neck, which is a fairly common feature. The transverse forema is that hole. And that hole in the owl is 10 times larger than the artery. So it has room to move. It gives it a buffer space as they twist the neck so that it's less likely to get pinched and mm. compressed as much. The blood vessels at the base of the head also are a bit more expanded, allowing blood to pool there as a secondary reserve. So on their full twist, if they do reduce blood flow, they have some backup blood for the brain to use. So they have a safety feature yeah, in case they are pinching something a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. I'd never thought about that before. Right? I'd never occurred. It makes perfect sense that, yeah, that would restrict blood flow and such. Never occurred to me. Yep. So they have a bunch going on in that neck to let them zero in. And the reason they're needing to zero in is so that they can isolate prey. Yes. Well, and especially if you're a bird who is hunting in a three-dimensional environment, mm -hmm. you're looking after quick-moving prey, the ability to move your head in basically any direction is very useful. Yes, and one thing made a note of, they can move through that 270 degrees swiftly and smoothly. And smoothly. Yes. That was in quotes. Like, <laughs> that, that not only can they move a lot, but it's very, very accurate and agile. Yeah, you can follow something that is moving around your head. One of the other cool things about having this mobile head is that they have a satellite dish face. So not only are you able to keep your eyes on your prey, but you're able to angle your face toward sound coming to you. In mammals, we have mobile ears, not us, but our mammal friends with cooler ears than us have mobile ears that they can angle toward sound. Owls don't have mobile ears, but they can direct their face and their face helps direct the sound to the ears. This is where that flat face comes in, that rounded dish-like face. This is called the facial disc. That is a feathery structure, so that does not actually translate to the shape of the skull. That is basically completely feathers. These are special feathers that help direct the sound that comes at the face to the ears. They are ringed by a, a series of particularly stiff feathers called the facial ruff, and these help to collect and amplify sound. So these are very much act like our external ear. The facial disc is doing the same job and it can even help to select the correct 
frequencies and types of sound that they need to be listening for. We see a ton of variation with this. Barn owls have the famous facial disc, but like a horned owl has less of one Mm -hmm. because they are hunting a bit more in the day and a bit more on vision. So you will see ones that have less to extreme ones. Fishing owls have almost no facial disc. Makes sense. So They're not hearing fish. Exactly. So the type of hunting and the type of prey they're going after will affect how reliant they are. So you can see extremely extreme ones and then ones that have basically lost it. They still have owly face, but not nearly the round flat area that we think of. So this acts as the funnel to direct sound to the ears. The ears themselves are often special too. One of the most famous things that you'll often hear about owl ears is that they are asymmetrical. Yeah. Some are. This is actually something that not all owls, and I don't even think most owls have. Barn owls are famous for it, Mm. and a number of other owls have it, but it is not a most owls thing. But it has been found in five different groups, like lines of owls, and potentially evolved separately in those different groups. Yeah. So this is a thing lots of owls have done, but is not a owl feature. Yeah. But asymmetrical ears, what we mean by that is one is higher on the skull than the other. One points up, one points down. In barn owls, at least, I didn't hear if this is the case for all the others, but at least in barn owls, I found that the right ear points up and the left ear points down. And this allows them to not only tell left and right, you know, we have left and right ears. And if sound comes from the right, I can tell it comes from the right because it hits my right ear first left ear second, my brain does the math and tells me where it is. This lets them do that, but with up and down. Yeah. So now they can... You hear in three dimensions. You can hear in 3D. So when we hear a sound, we can tell where it is on a compass. Mm-hmm. If it's behind us, if it's in front of us, left, right, and all that. They can tell where it is on the X, Y, and Z axis and pinpoint a sound in basically 3D space if it was hanging middle of the air not only would they know what direction but probably how far away it is one study found that barn owls can localize a sound within one degree of accuracy wow so they can zoom in on it basically dead line of sight to where it is even if they can't see what's making it very cool this pairs nicely with their other feature which is that they are very quiet birds. Yes. Not in the sounds they make. They are actually very noisy birds. They make all oh, sorts sure. of screech I mean, owls I, and I was going to say, screech owls exist. Yes. <laughs> Barn owls have that horrifying raspy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, owls are famous for that. But there's all sorts of noises. Some of them quite in- intense noises that owls make. The, it's also one of those satisfying things to me on both sides. Because on one, it's like, no, they don't all make that noise. There's Ooh-hoo. tons of weird noises they make. But there are actually a bunch that do go, woohoo. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's, and, and that's not just a storybook thing that lied to us. It's very funny to be in, and I, you know, it's very likely that many of our listeners have encountered the sounds of owls because owls are so cosmopolitan mm-hmm. in the world. But I remember being a young person being out in the woods and hearing an owl for the first time and going, oh, they do actually say who. Yes. That you did say <laughs> hoo-hoo yeah. out there in the woods. Yep. <laughs> that's, it's legit and it's. It's so satisfying. I got a, a horned owl, a great horned owl, to, to hoo-hoo back at a avian <laughs> sanctuary one time. But when we say that they are quiet birds, what we mean is they fly almost silently. Yeah, you often think of uh, fluttering is a very noisy thing. Yes. If you've ever had a bird fly past your head, 
there's a sound to it. Yes. There's noise to it. It has that, like, flapping a tarp. It's yep. that, that you're moving air, you're moving this structure against air, and it's ruffling and displacing the air. It makes a lot of noise. Owls have unnervingly quiet flight. Yeah. <laughs> there's tons of videos that you can find about that that show how silent they are with very sensitive microphones. This is accomplished with a number of features of the wing. First off, they have very large wings to their body size, mm -hmm. which gives them what we call low wing loading. There's not a lot of work being put on the wings as compared to a bird with smaller wings to body size. Yeah. The wing is having to do more effort to lift that weight. There's plenty of wing to go around for the owl, which gives them less intense. They don't have, they don't have to flap as often, but also slower flight. Yeah. They don't need as much velocity to create the lift that they require. So they are very slow flying birds compared to a lot of others. This is less disruptive to the air around them. So that helps lower the the turbulence that they're creating. Yeah. I imagine it's also less disruptive to the wing itself. Yes. So the wing itself isn't being deformed and ruffled as Absolutely. much. Absolutely. And if you're not having to flap as much 100%, mm -hmm. you can glide for much longer stretches than another bird could oh, you know, at low at low levels. You're not needing updrafts or anything. Yeah. But the famous thing is that their feathers have a lot of upgrades. By far, the most notable one is their leading edge has a fringe, a what's often called fluting or fimbrae. This fluting is little comb-like projections coming off the front of the lead feathers on the wing. So not every feather has this, but the ones at the cutting edge of the wing that'll be slicing through the air has this comb-like structure. These break the flow of air into what I saw called micro-turbulences. Instead of one big airfoil that could make a lot of noise, it's lots of little ones. And so it's kind of like how shark skin is rough, but actually is more hydrodynamic because it has the water hug it better. Mm -hmm. This is doing a similar kind of concept. It's breaking the air up so that it flows over the wing more quietly. There's tons of variation with these of like the angle, the length from owl to owl. You see some very extreme ones. You see ones that are basically non-existent. There are owls that, especially ones that hunt during the day, have basically no fr no fluting left. And likely because your prey can see you coming, so they... Right. Being silent is not nearly as important a feature. Yeah. At night, where you can be hidden, noise is one of the most important senses because I can't see as well, but I can hear. Yes. Now, and, a, and a lot of animals that are active at night have very good hearing absolutely. for that reason. So you're contending with prey species, potentially, that have evolved specifically to have really good ears. Yes. But we will talk more about that in the second section because there's a lot of interesting comments about that. <laughs> Another feature is there is a trailing fringe that's come, sometimes called the vein fringe. Now, it's not always on the trailing edge, but that was when it was first described. But this is found on other feathers of the wing and on the tail feathers and is doing a similar job, but just isn't on that front cutting edge. These are particularly well known in barn owls. All barn owls have these extra fringes. The upper surface of the feathers is also covered in a velvety texture that is probably a very similar thing to what a lot of birds have that helps the feathers increase friction between them so they aren't sliding past each other and they maintain their position on the wing. This is looks like it's an extreme version of that that helps muffle the airflow across the wing mm -hmm. after they get broken up by that fluting. 
And altogether, it gives them nearly silent flight. Yeah, they are very stealthy birds. Extremely, which aids them when they are hunting. Owls can hunt in a number of ways. There's two famous ones that comes up. One that's called coursing, which is like flying over a field back and forth and just listening. Mm-hmm. Just for, putting that satellite yep. dish in all directions. Just like the, the, the video game bad, like air unit. Oh, yeah. And you can see the field of yes, vision. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's just those, it's those helicopter units from Breath of the Wild. Yes. Uh, just with the red light. Uh, they just course back and forth over an area listening. And then when they hear something, go in for the, the kill. Lots of others perch and just sit on a branch and just scan their domain. Mm-hmm. And then once they zero in on something, just swoop off the perch directly to the prey. Perfectly quiet. Yes. Uh, at night, directly very, towards it. Very Batman. of Just yeah. perched on a building, <laughs> seeing your quarry and gliding to it. They are mainly generalist feeders, so they will take tiny prey. This could be rodents, small birds. Many are insectivorous, taking down insects and other invertebrates. Some have it go for bats, amphibians. There are some that are a bit more specialized or at least have preference, you know, seem to really focus in on one species. Uh, there are specialist feeders like fish owls, mm-hmm. which feed almost exclusively on fish and often hunt in a very different way because they can't listen to the fish under the water the same way. So they have to be visual. Some will still do the perch feeding, you know, look for the fish and swoop down to it. Others will wade into the water and look for the fish that way. So you do get some owls that are more specialized, but in general, small animal predators, they aren't typically picky. Yeah. I remember years ago seeing this great video, and it was just a a clip from this video of two, I think they were eagles or or of some kind, Mm -hmm. like young eagles sitting in a nest at night with one of those nighttime camera lights on them. And yes, I know what you mean. Yes, it's dark in the background, and there's this pair of lights <laughs> in the background that appear. There's just tiny little two dots of light that you have just enough time to wonder what are those dots, and it turns out they are the eyes of an owl that then, in the span of about a second, appears, takes one of the birds from the nest, and disappears again. Yep, and it's terrifying and awesome straight out of a horror movie yeah (laughs) (laughs) they are incredibly impressive i did find one thing that mentioned that typically they were have been considered not to be scavengers but more recent things have found a number of species being cited feeding on dead dead animals so it doesn't seem like it's an often behavior for them right but it's not like a rule that they don't do it exactly so there does seem to be some uh uh growing evidence or at least maybe new sightings that might change how we're looking at them in that light when they catch their prey they catch them with very weird feet i've been enjoying learning about owls because it's been fun to just be like they are weird literally top to bottom They're head to toe head to toe quite literally they have unusual legs and feet their legs have lots of very specific anatomical things that are very distinct to owls that i did not learn all because I don't know muscles well enough to, and and the bone joints and features to be able to actually mm-hmm. describe them. But like the neck, yes. a bunch of specific differences. If you are given an owl leg, an owl expert can immediately go, that's an owl. Yeah. That they are unusual compared to other birds. Their feet have a very particular feature that makes them quite unique among birds. 
their feet are often called semi-zygodactylous. So anisodactyl is the typical bird foot, three toes up front, one toe in the back. Owls can hold their feet that way, and that is quite good for walking around. Flat surfaces inside the nest, walking on the ground, normal bird foot. Zygodactyl is what we call a foot when it has two toes up front, at least with birds, two toes up front, two toes in the back. Yeah, like a parrot. Like a parrot. Mm -hmm. Owls can switch to zygodactyl mode. Oh. Their outer toe hinges, and it doesn't go quite to the parrot extreme, but it does hinge backward. So they can have a normal bird foot from when they're walking around and then switch it to grasping mode for perching and grabbing prey. Yeah. So parrots we've talked about on the podcast in passing are not great walkers Mm -mm. because they're excellent at perching. They're excellent at grasping. It's why they can like hold a peanut in front of them and then bite it open. Yes. Owls have an all-terrain foot. They they have two different modes, like the siege tanks from StarCraft. I'm full of of weird references today. (laughs) But yeah, you can switch modes. And evidently they share this with the osprey who came to it convergently. Oh, interesting. Which is a fishing bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it makes total sense Mm -hmm. for a fishing bird to have adaptations for better grip. Yes, indeed. Fish are very hard to grab onto. They are slippery. This is a, a gives them a very strong grip. They are famous for having extremely strong grips for a bird. Yeah. Uh, I've seen tons of things of, of handlers talk about, this is why we use heavy leather when we pick up an owl. Yes. Because they will just grip into you and just not even notice your, your skin is there. Yeah, I worked at a nature center in New York and we had an owl that was a rescue. And I, it was a little owl. I don't mm-hmm, remember what, mm-hmm. what species of owl it was. But the guy in charge of taking care of the animals, one of the rules was there there were tons of animals that any of us could handle for programs and stuff. Only he held the owl. Yeah. And part of that is because an owl is a very small, delicate bird. Yes. This owl had like, I think, a broken leg. Uh, I think that's how it ended up uh, in the nature center. But one of the other reasons was you will get hurt. Yes. If you try to hold this owl. Absolutely. They have very powerful grips. That is often one of their killing techniques for their prey is to just crush the prey in their talon. It's not uh, a killing bite like Mm -hmm. we often think about with other birds. They can just do it with the foot. There are some that will use a back of the head bite for their prey, Mm -hmm. but many, especially going after like voles and small rodents, will just, as they grab the prey, crush it. And so as they're flying away, the prey is already dead. Yeah. And that's... Very impressive. Yeah, it makes me wonder about that that that, that little eagle in that video oh, yeah. I was thinking of. That thing, that was probably over. <laughs> For we it. probably saw that. You see it happen in the video. Yep. Ugh. Yep. Uh, I also found that in barn owls, many of them have a, a pectinate talon, which is a serrated comb-like flange on the talon uh, that helps them with grooming, specifically the facial disc. Oh, interesting. And to maintain it. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's hard to preen your face, I exactly. guess. Exactly. Uh, evidently, another thing shared with the Osprey. Oh, cool. Uh, let's put in your request now for an Osprey's episode. I would love to do an Osprey's <laughs> episode. We had them around the aquarium, and they are so cool. Yeah. Very quickly, to wrap up, once they've caught their prey and they digest it, they have a slightly unusual digestion. They don't have a crop like many birds do, which is a place for them to mm-hmm. store food. They also tend to swallow prey alive. There are some that will eat bits off of it and then swallow it alive or not alive whole they tend to swallow their prey and prey in one gulp 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of well, birds we often think of as swallowing things yes. whole because often they do. A lot of birds of prey will hold their food down and then rip pieces off of exactly. it with the beak. It, it eat it bit by bit, like most predators. Yeah. You know, like you think of a lion eating something. Owls just down the hatch, whole little mouse goes through their digestive system. Once it reaches the gizzard, all of the good stuff that's been digested goes and continues to be digested. The tough bits that aren't quite digestible, bones, feather, hair, claws, teeth, that kind of stuff, comes back up and forms a pellet. Yes. Uh, Very famous thing about owls. Absolutely. This is the thing that they will regurgitate that has all of those bits that they couldn't digest or didn't want, you know, basically also wouldn't have been handy to have going through. Like, right. maybe they could have digested it. It would have dissolved, but it's not going to give them anything. Sure. And also, you know, if you can get rid of the sharp stuff. Yes, exactly. You might as well. <laughs> uh, the pellets often end up to be oval shaped because that's the shape of the gizzard. And that's what compresses it oh, yeah. into the pellet. It comes back up into their gastral stomach, the part that has the, the stomach acid and whatnot, and actually stays there for a while. It'll stay there for several hours. Hmm. So, like, the whole process takes, I think it said, like, seven hours to get to the formation of the pellet. And then it'll stay in the gastral stomach for a few more hours to probably finish digesting any bits that are left. Yeah, Uh, one last pass. But during that time, it's blocking their digestive tract. They can't eat. Huh. So there, there is a set, like, limit between when they can eat, uh, when they are getting ready to upchuck a pellet. Interesting. It makes me think it's very funny that one of the things we often talk about with birds is that is that they have a one-way respiratory tract. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to us, where it's two-way, the, the new air and the old air is going the same way. It's very odd to think that owls are using a two-way digestive tract. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the food is coming back the way it came in. Yes, it's, it's, it's a... A fairly complex procedure from everything I was reading. Yeah. Now, I should, because I just made that comparison, I should clarify. Owls also poop. Yes. Like, the the, the good stuff is going all the way through. And it will just get digested as we digest stuff. Yes. But, but a, they have this special system yeah. where they, ha- they need that passage for the return trip. Now, as should be mentioned, because this is something that I think gets overlooked a lot of times when we mention owl pellets... Lots of birds produce pellets. Tons of birds. There are even Cretaceous bird yes. fossils with pellets associated with them. This is a fairly normal bird thing. Mm-hmm. The thing that makes owl pellets so famous is they retain a lot of bone material. Yeah. This is why you are familiar with them if you've seen them in your classroom. Exactly. Because there's stuff in there that you can look at and recognize. Like there's other birds that don't wouldn't have bone material because it's like songbirds and things like that that aren't eating anything with bones. Right, you're eating seeds or whatever. But there are other birds of prey that produce pellets, but they usually don't retain as many bones in there. Hmm. So they just aren't as intriguing to us as a way to study the insides of the pellet. Yeah, well, and part of it is that, like you said, owls are often swallowing small food whole. Mm -hmm. An eagle that's tearing off pieces is going to be leaving behind a lot of bones and breaking and destroying bones a lot as they make their way in. Yes, indeed. An owl's going to have a whole mouse skeleton in its stomach Mm -hmm. that it can puke back up. Yes. Which we will talk more about in the next section. We we have to. Yes. It's, It's a famous thing. I like this discussion about all the features of owls because it feels like a very 
fun parallel to just a few episodes ago, episode 181, which is about dragonflies. Mm -hmm. And we have now two episodes about two different groups of highly specialized, highly efficient flying predators. Yep. Like two completely different lineages of animals that have found completely different adaptations to be the best there is at what they do. Yeah. And it's really fun to see basically very little between owls and dragonflies is directly comparable. Yeah. But it is very funny that in the dragonflies episode, I did the same thing of let's just go through the whole body and talk about all the features they have that make them excellent aerial predators. Because that, that is the thing that really just stands out about those two groups is, mm-hmm. you know, it, other birds of prey are extremely good at what they do. Sure. Like eagles are awesome. Hawks are awesome. It's fantastic predators. But owls do it in a way that most of those don't. And they do it extremely well. Yeah. And with that, we can pause for a break and after that, talk about the evolution of owls and their fossil record and our understanding of how they got to be so unique. Very often when we talk about a very uh, highly specialized group of animals, we run up on the fact that their fossil record is missing or lacking or, or patchy or, you know, that we we're, don't have a solid grasp. Right. Well, I remain traumatized after the last episode. <laughs> You're not going to tell us that there's no owl fossils. In fact, there are tons of owl fossils. Fantastic. But they are, they have features that make some of the things, some of our attempts to understand their evolution tricky. Hmm. First off, they have a very long fossil record. Their fossil record goes back to 60 million years ago. Oh, wow. Right after the end Cretaceous. They are one of the earliest predatory bird lineages that that leads up to today that yeah. we see in the fossil record. So they are very early on and fairly well established, like well documented throughout that time. Hmm. There are at least 100 known extinct species of owls identified many of those are from today's groups of the barn owls and the true owls but most are from extinct lineages but the vast majority of those fossils are extremely partial and by extremely partial a ton of owls are only known by leg bones yeah this is pretty common for birds birds tend not to fossilize very well so a lot like the gray fossil site we've got a bunch of bird fossils but they're basically all just fragments and often limb bones yes so the two that often come up are the tarso metatarsi and the tibiotarsi which are a lot of bones bird bones are fused into a singular element that used to be multiple bones yes and so so that's why these are all lower leg bones yes so that's why you get the Tarso metatarsi is it's yeah. naming the bones it's, that came it's together. The tarsals and the metatarsals have combined together. So the lower legs, basically the leg, the part of the leg leading up to the foot where all the toes would be is often the one sighted. This means that we can identify owls very easily because as we said earlier, they have weird legs. Mm-hmm. So when we find one of their leg bones, it's easy to go owl, 100% owl. We can talk, tell a lot about 
some of their lifestyles, you know, how they were moving around on the land, what kind of feet they had, Mm -hmm. but we can't tell very often what kind of face they had. Right, which is kind of an important part. Yeah. uh, Given all the weird things about owls. So the rest of the body is often missing, which means that we don't actually have a very solid grasp on when owls started to look like the owls we know. Mm -hmm. We don't know when that owl body plan came to be. We have some later ones that have owl body plans, but we don't have a good solid record of the early formation of these features. Yeah, those earliest owls may have been shaped like hawks. Yeah, they might have looked nothing like... You might not have recognized it as an owl with all its plumage on. Yeah. It might have looked completely different. It had feet like an owl, at least well enough for us to identify it, but if you're not looking at the feet, you might not be able to tell. There are some moments of confusion that I found in some studies. The placement of many fossil owls has gone back and forth because of this lack of all the identifying features. So many fossil owls have jumped between between groups quite a bit. Yeah, they've been identified inconsistently exactly. as to where they fit. Placed in one group originally, getting removed and put into a new group or their own group. Uh, the two most famous cases of confusion were two dinosaurs that got uh, grouped within the owls for a bit until they were pulled back out and re-identified accurately as dinosaurs. Oh, man. I know that that means they're they're not owls, but no. it does make me picture owl dinosaurs. It, 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 they are evidently very weird, and they are also each only known from a leg bone. Yeah. The type, specie, the type uh, specimen for each of them is one leg bone. <laughs> this is Heptastiornis and Bradicnemi. Oh, I've heard of one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is an alvarezosaur from the late Cretaceous. Uh, they said a dubious genus, so even it is still very it's questioned what it is. Uh, Bredicnemi is means ponderous leg <laughs> <laughs> and is a theropod also from the Cretaceous of Transylvania. Both of these were identified initially as gigantic Cretaceous owls. And then later on, someone went, no, those are dinosaurs for sure. Right, those are not so owls. As it turns out, these are, these, they sounds like they're weird dinosaurs. Yes. Yeah, that's a real shame. Right? Uh, no, no offense to other theropods, but gigantic Cretaceous owls would have been better. Yep, yep. <laughs> so, so far, there's no owls pre the Cenozoic, you know, going into the Cretaceous. It seems they show up in the mid Paleocene. Right. T Rex and Triceratops never heard that hoo hoo in the Exactly. Forest. They didn't get to make any of those jokes. Nope. As mentioned, this makes them some of the earliest carnivorous birds that we know of, uh, especially ones that are still around today. Modern lineages Mm -hmm. of predatory birds. The oldest record of hawks and eagles is Eocene, so they predate them for being predatory birds. The order Strigiformes is typically subdivided into six families. The modern ones, the Strigidae and the Titanidae, your true and barn owls. For others, which are the fossil groups... The Sophiornithidae, the Protostrigidae, the Ogygoptingidae. That's a weird one. That's a very weird one. <laughs> and the Paleoglossidae. These are all outside crown group owls. Right. Ancient lineages of yes, owls. Yes, indeed. Uh, but they are by far the bulk of the extinct species we know. So most of our fossil owls fall into these four. Another notable thing about their fossil record is they are extremely well known from Eurasia and North America, and parts of Northern Africa, but most of Africa and most of the Southern Hemisphere is not well known for them. Okay. So they... Which is not unusual for a lot of animals. Yes, indeed. Paleontology has tended to focus in the Northern Hemisphere. Absolutely. So it definitely means we could be missing them from down there because we haven't found them yet, 
but so far it has suggested to some that this means they may have started in the Northern Hemisphere mm -hmm. and originated there before spreading globally. The oldest fossils we have date to the late Paleocene, North America and Europe. In North America, it's the Ojigoptanks, and in Europe, it is Eruornis. Mm -hmm. These both date to 60 million years ago and a little bit after. I don't. I did not find a lot of detail about what kind of animals they were because they are not known for much. Mm -hmm. A lot of the fossil owls, though, that you'll hear about are going to be in the Protostrigidae. All of these are known only from hind limbs, basically. Like, basically all the... I think there are a couple since, more recently, that have had more postcranial than that. But basically all the specimens in those groups just mentioned are just their leg bones. We are able to tell some things about owls during this time that they do that they do ha already have a decent diversity in size. Uh, there are ones noted to be the size of eagle owls in the Oligocene, and what's ones much smaller during the Eocene is when we get Eostrix golodii, which is a protostrigid. Once again, early Eocene of Virginia, which is the smallest owl known ever. Not just fossil ever. This is the smallest fossil we the f smallest owl we know of thus far. They said it likely measured a mere 12 centimeters. They don't have enough to give a huge description mm -hmm. of it, as is the trend. They said, though, compared to the smallest today's owls, elf owl and the long-whiskered owlet, the long-whiskered owlet doesn't sound like it has good measurements even today, like in museum yeah. specimens. <laughs> but the elf owl is 12 to 14 centimeters long, so that's five to uh, f uh, more a little over five and a half inches and that a tarso metatarsus assigned to the alpha owl was distinctly longer than this species interesting so we likely had owls already filling that role these are insectivore insectivores nowadays so this was likely eating something similar which shows that they diversified in their size and you know probably ecological niches pretty quickly so we have a decent amount of fossil records from the early evolution of owls, but basically no full bodies and almost zero skull material. Uh, there's some crushed portions and small fragments of two species I found mentioned, but that's it. So we have a very shaky picture of what these owls would have been like. We also don't have a full picture of when the modern groups originated. I, I saw the Miocene showing up for some of the earliest members placed within modern lineages, but we don't actually have a great resolution as to when our modern groups start to show up or first establish in the fossil record. So a very good record, but kind of a, a patchy one and not in that we have hot and cold, but just that what we have can only tell us so much. Yeah, it makes me think of the snake fossil record. Yeah. Where there's tons of snake fossils, but they're almost exclusively vertebrae. Yes. There's not very not common that we find skull material or whole bodies. Which is a very informative part that we are missing. Yes. We do have some standouts and you know typically younger specimens that do give us very interesting looks into some unique fossil owls. Many of which that stand apart from our today owls are island owls. Mm -hmm. That a makes sense. whole bunch of weird and unique island owls. Many of these are just big, big owls, which is a fairly normal thing to happen on islands. We talked about island gigantism uh, on the podcast before, where in that isolation, 
either due to lack of predators or due to the prey getting bigger. Many predators can get larger than their mainland cousins, and we see that with a bunch of owls. There are notable barn owls in the Miocene, uh, different species, Tito robusta and Tito gigante, that are, uh, as, they, as it described in the paper I found, robusta is very much larger than modern barn owls, and gigante was quite simply gigantic, <laughs> uh, suggested to be as large or larger than the Eurasian eagle owl. So okay. potentially on par or slightly bigger than our largest owls today. Mm-hmm. And that is way bigger than we see barn owls now. These were on the Gargano Peninsula in Italy, which at the time would have likely been an archipelago yeah, of islands. Yeah, this is the same place that the big duck comes from. Yes, there you go. Yep, about. yep, yep. And so this is uh, not the only ones. There's also a number of species from Cuba, the Quaternary, so much more recent. That fall in a similar size range. So a bunch of really big barn owls that were likely living on islands at the time. There was also one I found called the Rodriguez owl, which is a giant scopes owl. Scopes owls are a group of owls today. Genus Otis. This is from an island in the Indian Ocean. Very recent. Uh, This went extinct because of us humans. Uh, This is 18th century that they disappeared. And they actually showed a very unusual body plan for owls. They are... Very big, twice as large, and four times heavier than the continental scopes owl, with slightly reduced wing length, which seems like they might have been flying less. Probably still could fly, but maybe not as well. Because this one is so recent, we do also have more of the body to study, and its head is weird. Its cranium and brain are small compared to its general body size. It's not in proportion with its cousin owls. They said it exhibits a two-tier lag-behind phenomena that the head hasn't seemed to keep up with the body size increase. Hmm. It has stayed smaller. So they have an unusually small head and brain, less vertical posture, so their head isn't as upright as we typically think of owls being, which could be just due to it's getting bigger that that's changed its posture somehow. And its eyes were placed more on the side of the head, not nearly as forward-facing. It seems like it's just losing all the owl things. Yeah, which could mean that it's behaving differently. It might be living more on ground Mm -hmm. and not hunting in a way an owl typically does. And all of these things are things not noted in any owl today, like Mm -hmm. any living owl. And I didn't see any of these mentioned in any other fossil group that I looked up. So this seems to be kind of a one-off, unique, thus far, weird island owl. There's also a bunch of island owls that have gone terrestrial that seem to have gone almost full-on walking around. Uh, This is not unheard of. Burrowing owls today are a very small species that have long legs and spend a ton of time on the ground. These are in North and South America, uh, so out in, like, the West in open environments, uh, you know, grasslands and deserts. They tend to live in burrows, as their name suggests, usually dug by someone else, like a prairie dog Mm -hmm. or something. They are also unusual in that they are diurnal they're active during the day and they spend most of their time running around on the ground they are still perfectly capable flyers uh they just don't use that as their main hunting tool and way of getting around they tend to hunt on the ground for insects there are a number of fossil groups that also seem to have taken a similar approach to life some of which potentially to an even further degree some of the most famous ones are the stilt-legged owls Mm -hmm. growlistrix is the genus These are all from the Hawaiian Islands, 
and are also a fairly recent extinct species. We don't have a ton of material from them, but we do have some subfossils and owl pellets that we can identify to different species. And their name literally translates to owls on stilts loosely. <laughs> they had very long legs, highly suggestive of spending tons of time on the ground, likely hunting on the ground. Probably for small birds, uh, some of their features seem to suggest that they were hunting more robust prey than insects. It looks like they were still able to fly, even though they were running around. And I saw one thing that mentioned that they probably represent a single colonization. So a group of owls made it to the Hawaiian Islands and then diversified across the islands into different stilt-legged species. But they're not the only ones like this. I found the Macronesia scopes owls, which is, once again, extinct because of us. These also have longer legs, shorter wings, and were described as probably weak flyers. Probably not flightless. So I, I, thus far, I don't, I haven't seen any of these described as fully terrestrial. You know, so not full on flightless. But by far the most extreme in both of these categories is the giant Cuban owl, Ornimegalonyx. This is a species known from cave deposits, late Pleistocene, that are found throughout the island, uh, fairly abundant. There's at least three nearly complete specimens known of this species. It's found to be closely related to a number of owls in the genus Strix. So these are like earless owls and wood owls. And is likely the largest owl that ever existed thus far that we know of by a bunch. Estimated to, at standing height, to be 1.1 meters, 3 feet 7 inches. That's a big owl. That's a big owl. <laughs> that is a decent-sized toddler owl. <laughs> Body mass was has been estimated at 9 to 13 and a half kilograms or 20 to 30 pounds. Very long legs for its size and extremely bulky with some features that indicate a very short tail. The legs are also robust and powerful looking. So not just long, but also seem to have substantial musculature behind them, which has led to the idea that they were probably runners. Mm -hmm. So not just moving around on the ground well, but actually able to pursue things potentially. They have a reduced keel and sternum so likely weakened flight muscles so they've often been described as nearly flightless potentially completely flightless right and that's pretty big to be flying around very much yep so this may be our first flightless owl and if it could fly they said it was probably like a modern turkey and was not graceful and only did it when it really had like yeah. if it could it wouldn't have been often this owl was so extreme that when it was first described, it was described as a forest racket, a terror bird. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. That's how big and powerful we're talking. <laughs> this is a terror bird-esque owl. It heavily resembles in a lot of features burrowing owls today, so they've looked at that to compare, but does not seem to be related. And is likely it's been described as likely an ambush predator, still likely crushing things with its talons. But this one could be taking down things as big as moderately sized small mammals, mm -hmm. you know, like capybara sized things, even though those weren't on there. But they were there were mammals similar in that size. This is by far the biggest and most powerful uh, owl that we found yet to date. And none of the others really reach its size, uh, comes close to this size record. So it is a standout member. We do also have a couple of owls that seem like they might be diurnal that have some, we do have skull material of some more recent ones. Uh, there's one partial skull and this is the oldest one I found was from the Eocene. It seems like one of the only major skull materials from that time. 
that paper called it the most complete specimen of a paleogene owl. So like this is uh, noteworthy, but it had enough for them to look at some of the features of the eyes and see that they weren't as big or forward facing. It's neck bones also indicated that it didn't have as much movement to the head as owls today. So it does seem like it's probably a diurnal owl. So hunting during the day and not at night due to the reduction in the eyes. And it does give us the one hint that it seems like their predatory, you know, raptorial features came around before their owl face. Hmm. That they, before they started looking like owls in the face with big eyes and likely that facial disc for hearing, they were already probably catching prey in a more prey, a bird of prey style, raptorial style. Yeah, they may have started out more like a hawk. Mm-hmm. Before becoming very owly. Yes. So this sounds like it's one of our only indications as to what the pattern of them becoming owly yeah. was. It does It does raise the very interesting question of how long uh, in this major lineage of owls have they looked like modern owls? Yep. Were you more like hawks and eagles for most of that time? Exactly. Uh, there was also another Miocene one uh, from China that also has enough of the skeleton to indicate that it looks like it might have been diurnal. This, though, is probably a reversal back to diurnal behavior. So they likely came from diurnal ancestors, daytime birds, but the ones we have today probably went back to being daytime mm-hmm. birds. This one also seems to be more similar to today's diurnal owls. So there seems to be some interesting trends in them moving from night to day throughout their evolution. And with that, I don't have a ton else to say about the fossil record. There's more species than that, but most are just noted as being a fossil species of owl. Not a lot of specifics and no other weirdos that I came across. But there are some things that, due to the fossil record or just due to questions about how owls are today, that have been looked at in their evolution. Lots of things about owls being so weird has led to us asking why exactly or how they got so weird. So let's talk about some of those features. One of the biggest questions with owls, and this isn't dealing directly with the fossils, but we will get to some of that, is with their silent flight. Why they have it. Because typically, as we were alluding to earlier, the idea is that, yeah, so you can sneak up on prey. Mm -hmm. They can't hear you coming. There is another reason they might be quiet, and these two questions and hypotheses have been a big focus in owl evolution. One of the hypotheses is the stealth hypothesis, that you are quiet to sneak up on your prey. This is also sometimes called the mouse ear hypothesis, (laughs) that you have developed silent flight because your prey has good hearing, and if you're hunting them at night, you need to be able to get past that hearing. The other hypothesis is called the self-masking hypothesis. Owls, when they hunt, many of them use their excellent hearing to zero in on prey. When they hear it, they swoop down toward it, and they continue to listen to the prey the entire way to adjust their flight pattern and zero in on it. If they have noisy wings, they might not be able to continue to hear the prey. Yeah. So the silent wings might be so they can hear the prey over their wings, not so the prey can't hear their wings. Yeah. And this is what they call reduced self-masking. Masking is what happens when one sound blurs out your ability to hear another. Self-masking means you're making too much noise to be able to hear what you're listening for. Yes. So the fl- the silent wings might be reduced self-masking, what I saw called the owl ear hypothesis. <laughs> so one idea is you're quiet because your prey has good hearing. This one is you're quiet because you have good hearing. And these two have kind of gone back and forth and are by no means exclusive. Right. 
you could absolutely have silent wings because you don't want to you don't want their prey to hear you and then because you're listening to your prey that adds another reason to have silent wings and they add up together right this is a feature that is beneficial for both of those reasons exactly and there's lines of evidence that support kind of can support both or potentially support both like for instance one of the things that the stealth hypothesis predicts is that if you're trying if you use silent wings to sneak up on prey owls that hunt effectively deaf prey like fish won't need silent wings because they're not going to be sneaking up on them they have no reason there's no uh, issue with being noisy which is true of fishing owls they have much reduced fluting so they do not have nearly as quiet wings but the self-masking hypothesis also predicts that if you're hunting prey you can't hear like a fish Mm -hmm. you also don't need to be quiet because you don't need to hear them over your wings so there are definitely some lines of evidence that could potentially be supporting one a little bit more that maybe this is the original reason but also seem like they could also could be simultaneously supporting the other hypothesis Another one that comes up is diurnal owls, that if you're flying during the day and prey can see you coming, there's no reason to be quiet because they're going to see you coming before they hear you or they can at least. So there's not nearly as much pressure to be silent. But then again, if you're hunting during the day, then you can see your prey. You don't necessarily need to listen for it the whole way. So you might not need to be as quiet because you're not needing to hear them. So there's definitely not a one or the other. The biggest support for one of these that doesn't directly support the other is that we do see owls with better hearing have more silent flight. Interesting. That barn owls have by far the most specialized of facial discs and they have the most silent flight. And we do see a trend that owls with reduced facial discs have less silent flight. There does seem to be a a correlation between intensity of hearing features and intensity of self-masking features that leans things a little bit more in support of that that might be the initial reason silent flight started to evolve and then both could have played a role in it but uh, from what i saw it seems like a lot of the research puts self-masking as potentially the actual reason this might have developed in owls at least early in their evolution another question that is a little bit this one feels a little more you know nitpicky on but it is a structural question that has been looked into is is the silent flight quieting the noise the wind makes over the wing or the noise the wing makes because as we were saying ruffling together feathers could make wing could make noise but also the air moving could make noise and so it's been asked is this quieting aerodynamic noise the wind or structural noise the wing and though i only found one paper that was really digging into the support of this but it did find that there seems to be at least currently more support for it being quieting the wing and that just bird wings naturally might be noisy and owl wings have developed to be a quieter wing. But one owl feature we can study the evolution of quite accurately is their feet because we have those leg bones and we do see some interesting patterns in their evolution of feet. First off, it looks like that hinged toe likely evolved multiple times in owls that multiple groups came to this on their own. I didn't find a number specifically of how many times it's thought that it happened, but that there definitely seems to be unrelated groups at times that don't sync up with it coming across owls or just from a single origin. Mm -hmm. And some of those groups were even described as potentially having even more mobile toes and even more extreme hinge or mobility 
to uh, digit two is technically the one it is, that outer digit. We are able to find certain things in some groups, like the the Sophornithids uh, in the Eocene, actually able to track their toe, being able to move further and further backward over time, so that there, it is a progressional evolution of that that semi-zygodactyl foot. That's cool. And this can give us information about that is more effective not only for catching prey, but also for perching. Yep. So we may see them ha- having moved to a more perching hunting style that we see in Owl's Day that could have shown up over that time more prominently. And while we're on the note, there was one weird owl, owl. Primoptinx, which is a early Eocene owl from Wyoming, had weird feet. Uh, it was a partial skeleton from a decent-sized owl, but its feet and the size of them are unusual compared to owls, unlike any alive today, at least. And of course, they were much more similar in their proportions to hawks and eagles, which could mean that this was an owl hunting more like a hawk and eagle and maybe even killing them that way without, instead of the crushing grip, but maybe killing with more of a beak Mm -hmm. and could mean that they were going after larger prey, you know, things that they aren't killing with one grab and swallowing whole, but they may have been a a even more literal eagle owl. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there are some interesting trends in their feet evolution with some standout members, but we do see an overall trend in many groups of as they start to develop that hinge toe, it becoming more and more extreme to give them a more crushing and perching grip. Another area of research I found uh, that came up a number of times was the question of why they have the type of sexual dimorphism they have with females being larger and males being smaller. This is sometimes called reverse sexual dimorphism, even though that's not actually an accurate term. Sexual dimorphism just means male and females are (laughs) different in your shape or size. And that's what this is. So it's not actually reversed. But it is unusual compared to most other birds and, you know, like mammals, where the males often are bigger because they're either competing for against one another for mates or territory. And so they need to be bigger to do that. There's been a couple of ideas thrown out as to why this might have happened. And I found one paper that summed up into three main categories of hypotheses. Ecological ones could be that it lessens competition between the two, that females and males can now hunt slightly different things because they're at slightly different weight classes. Though it's been pointed out, this doesn't actually suggest which one should be larger. So it just gives a reason for the difference. Role differentiation, which that a large female could be better at protecting their nest and their their eggs. It also might be something like increasing incubation efficiency. So it might have something to do with the role that the females are filling and that being larger helps. While males might be better at foraging for food or catching specific things like being more agile to take down more agile prey or it could be behavioral with females being more dominant and or competing for males that they are taking on those roles we typically think of males and other species doing i didn't find any evidence that one of these is majorly standing out above others there are some hawks and other birds of prey that also show this same pattern of sexual dimorphism and there does seem to be some support that those smaller males tend to go after more agile prey so that maybe that your size decrease has let you be a better forager for your nest mate for a specific type of prey. There definitely could be others, other factors from the other hypotheses playing a role. And the final category to discuss is owl pellets. Now we mentioned those already. These are very characteristic things of owls, but they also come into play in multiple forms of research and understanding ancient owls. 
As owls consume their prey and upchuck the bones, they can often act as bioaccumulators, gathering together the remains of small prey species from their area, which in modern studies trying to learn about the population dynamics for different ecosystems have often been cited as extremely useful, where the owls are better at capturing prey than we would be putting traps out. Yes. And that using these pellets can give us an idea of the population of small rodents or prey animals in that location over a larger area than is often feasible for a human-led trapping endeavor and with more consistent capture rate. This has been questioned by researchers in the past as to if it's actually a valid method. Are the owls actually capturing a random selection of the local prey? Are they hunting randomly across the area? And is it going or is it going to give us a skewed view right. of the prey in that, that habitat? Is this one good tool, but it needs to be supplemented by others? Yes. So there have been a number of studies on different species of owl, often on barn owls, because they are the most widely distributed, and they are very note their pellets are really good, <laughs> evidently. Owl barn owls specifically just produce very useful pellets compared to everyone else. So there's been a number of studies testing that. Are these actually usable as a study item? And from the ones I found, it seems like the answer is usually, yeah, no. When we compare it, when we do a trap study and mm -hmm. then a pellet study, they are similar. Like they show the similar trends. So it doesn't seem like we're getting wildly different sets of data, but the owl pellets are always more complete for what our estimates of the populations would be. Yeah. So they seem to genuinely be a kind of ideal tool for doing modern small animal population studies in environments. Which is very cool because it also, there are sampling within their range. Yes. So if you know how far out that owl is going to hunt for stuff, you have a sense of what region did these bones come from? Yes, especially because a lot of small species have fairly, you know, notable ranges. So you yeah. can compare. We found this that gives us this information. Yeah, somewhere within, you know, half a mile or whatever, these animals are living here. One of the studies gave a really great comparison in that when they studied between the two traps set by people and owl pellets, the pellets yielded 14 species, 840 individuals, and it took them 152 hours to gather and collect that data. With traps, only got six species with 361 individuals with 194 hours of work. The owls are better biologists than we are. Yes. <laughs> and there's a number of reasons for this. Traps are hard to set. You know, sure. A lot of things live up in trees or in the underbrush. So you have to have a different kind of trap for the different places you might put it. Some animals are trap friendly. Like they seek out the bait you put in there and some are trapped shy the owl is going and getting mm -hmm. we're not relying on the prey to come to the trap we let the owl go get them this also comes up in archaeology and fossil sites because owls have been doing this for millions and millions of years owl pellets are great for fossils we find tons of examples of accumulated small animal deposits often where a owl was living you know, roosts and cave systems and rock outcrops, barn owls that we call them barn owls because they like to live in barns because mm -hmm. they're an enclosed space because that's where they find to hunt and live out in the wild is caves and rock outcroppings. We will often find deposits of 
layer upon layer of what used to be owl pellets. Yeah, this is similar to, we talked about something similar to this, I think maybe in the hyenas episode. Yes. 109 about predatory animals that will have a den or something that ends up being a site of accumulation for things that lived nearby. This is also, we have mentioned this, I'm sure, before on the podcast, what happens with pack rat minions. There are animals that are good accumulators. Which is one of the first questions you have to ask is, how do we confirm that an owl did this? Right. Because it could be another predator. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned hyenas. There are tons of other small ma- small animal predators You know, that would yep. be hunting the same and, things. And lots of other birds. Mm-hmm. Could also be going in there for shelter. They might not be producing pellets, but they could be coming out and scat. And we don't, all we have left is the accumulation of bones. It also might be that the small animals were just dying there mm-hmm. for some reason. So studies have been done on how to tell the taphonomic differences. So taphonomy, we've mentioned, is what happens to a bone after the animal dies and either during or before it's fossilized, like the things that happen to it between it dying and us finding it. Mm -hmm. There are numerous features that can distinguish what was the cause of the accumulation. Uh, When it comes to predators, there's a lot of things that can show up. The damage on the bone, the kinds of bones that are collected, the digestion pattern on the bone. So it could be that you damaged it while eating it or that it got digested to a certain extent. And so they've done studies on modern predators to try to be able to have a guidebook for if you see these features, it probably means you had this predator in your area. So it lets us ID who was hunting in that archaeology site or paleontol or, or fossil site. And since owls have a very distinctive feeding and producing of the, the pellet, it's often very easy to tell owl from other small animal predators. But we can even get more specific. There have been studies on different groups of owls mm-hmm. to find the pattern of how they each produce their pellets and what makes it to the pellet, how much of the prey animal actually survives the digestion process. So we can sometimes even narrow it down to, this is definitely a barn owl pellet. Yeah. Which I imagine can be useful if we then know different hunting styles Mm -hmm. or different prey preferences of certain groups of owls. And also just to ID barn owls that too lived at this archaeology at this uh, this site. They one of the studies fed prey to different owls and then collected them from each and then analyzed them and found some really interesting statistics in all three species. It was a barn owl, a great horned owl, and a screech owl. In all three, only half the bones ingested were recovered. So you only get about half the prey animal back once it's been eaten. Mandibles, the jaw, and the femur were the most abundant. Pelvis, you know, the hips, and the scapula were least abundant. Screech owls broke 80% of the cranial and limb elements. Barn owls only 30%. And skulls fared poorly in the great horned owl and screech owl, but returned 80% of them in the barn owl pellets. So like we can even tell based on their feeding or their digestion process, which owl it was. And once again, barn owls are just really good. Mm -hmm. Their pellets produce a lot more stuff. So they are very informative. This has led to some cool findings in uh, especially archeological sites where we have deposits of barn owl pellets. The one I found that was really interesting was uh, some caves and rock shelters in Argentina, multiple sites it sounded like, where we have evidence of people using those areas, but also barn owl pellets. They were 
all you know able to do what we've talked about already of finding the variation of species found in those pellets reflecting what small animals there would have been living around the area and what animals those humans would have had around them as well to give a picture of the environment but they were also able to get some seasonal information by using current temperature and humidity data they were able to compare it to those assemblages and found that those pellets were put down mostly in Ottoman winter when they were probably less occupied by people. Hmm. That we can see the owls seem to be using these more when people aren't there and potentially that's when this accumulation was happening. So we could even get a little bit of the interaction between ancient humans and ancient owls. So owl pellets can be ridiculously informative today and back into the fossil and archaeological record. Yeah. And with that, I think we can wrap up our discussion on owls. Very cool birds. They are extremely interesting. But we will wrap that up for now. If you want to know more, check out the blog post and all that good stuff. But also you can ask us for more questions and episodes dealing with these things. Make that osprey request. But before we wrap up entirely, we have one last section to do. We have a patron question. Every episode, we like to answer one of the questions from one of our patrons, which is a thing you get to do if you are at certain levels of Patreon. You get to ask us a question. We answer here on the podcast. And today's question is from... We've got a question. This is a question about birds. This is a question specifically about Hoatzins or Hoatzins. I don't know. I've, I've, yeah. I've, I've also said Hoatzins. Mm-hmm. I think I've heard them called Hoatzins. Like... Hoatzins? Yeah. Yeah. This is a question from Kylie. Kylie asks... Hoatzins are birds that, as hatchlings, have claws on their wings similar to Archaeopteryx. They use these claws to climb and such. What's up with that? Are these claws ancestral, or did they get them back somehow? Very good question. Yeah, Hoatzins are South American birds. They live in the uh, Amazon and Orinoco river basins. They are typically found in swampy areas, and forested mangroves are very famous for having them. And the chicks are born with two little claws on each wing. And when they hatch, they are able to move around better than your average hatchling and actually climb using those claws in their feet. Mm -hmm. They can climb up the vines or branches of the tree around the nest. This is often what they'll do when the nest is threatened by a predator is they will flee the nest and scatter while the parents try to distract the predator. They can also use this mobility in swimming if they fall out of the nest to swim back over to the foliage and climb out of the water. Uh, This isn't the only bird, evidently. Turacos is another bird that also has nestlings with climbing claws. Yeah, I know know that Hoatzins are famous for having those digits, but I believe there are at least a a handful of birds that have that feature. I think uh, uh, one of the things that makes them stand out is they're one of the only ones that uses it for mobility and has it as developed as they do. Like, they are an extreme version of this. As Kylie mentioned, Archaeopteryx, the famous first bird, Mm -hmm. is notable for having still clawed digits on the feathered wing. And this was true of lots of early birds. Yeah, Uh, in the late Jurassic and into the Cretaceous, there are lots of these birds that still have claws. So that was a fairly common feature. And then eventually birds lost those clawed digits and now have just the winged limb. Archaeopteryx had three functional claws. And the early studies on the Watson made a note of like, yeah, these are extremely similar to Archaeopteryx claws and was thought that they likely had some direct descendants and had just lost 
one of the three. Yeah, some early studies made that assumption. It's like, oh, are we seeing a bird that is closer connected to those early members? But most studies now and our understanding, especially of their genetics, has supported more that they are not the same claws. They are not directly left over from those ancestral uh, uh, dinosaur claws. These are likely re-evolved through a process called atavism, where the genetics for those claws, while not utilized and not activated in most birds, was potentially still there in the DNA. Mm. The code for dino claws remained enough that it got reactivated at some point. And these Huatzin claws came from that. Right. They have a genetic foundation to create claw-like structures. Yes. And re-emerged at some point. Yes. So it's probably the same DNA code that coded for those kinds of claws. Like the at, same, at least in part. Yes, exactly. Like a portion of it, it's probably from that same source that the claw, the DNA that coded for Archaeopteryx claws is where this DNA came right. from. Very much the same way that birds still have genes that can produce teeth. Yes. If the genetics gets tweaked, we've done that experimentally. Yes. But if we were to go and have a perfect record of all the ancestors of Huatsons, they pr probably came from non-clawed ancestors. Mm -hmm. And these are ones that re-emerged anew in a Huatson. So it's connected it's it's a similar genetic connection but not actually the same set of claws yeah that archaeopteryx had uh, very uh, and it's a very unusual situation because it is shockingly similar when you see the two and seems almost a very roundabout way to get to such a similar yes. <laughs> set of features very cool birds awesome i love i love watson's very good question thank you for that kylie and with that we can wrap up this episode as always we had a ton of fun discussing this. If you want to learn more, check out the blog. There'll be images and links there. Remember, we have our Spotlight series starting soon, so keep an eye out for that. That'll be coming out throughout this year. Thanks again to those of you who requested this episode and our new patrons. And special extra thanks to our top, top patrons, Sarah May, Daniel the Bug Lover, and Robert Mart. As always, we release new episodes every fortnight so check in then there'll be another one coming up soon you won't even hear it coming <laughs> well hopefully you hear it coming now now is that's, it for that's the point is it so that the the listeners don't hear it coming or so that we can I record the podcast over i'm not gonna the sound to of it. the episode <laughs> which one is it it's silent so we for? can hear the listener requests that's in, what it is uh even as the podcast is going <laughs> out goodbye everybody Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.